chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. A familiar text, but it opened up to me in a unique way, and I hope that it will for you as well this morning. This morning's message is called The Improbable King. The Improbable King. Let me read verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This text is familiar. We read it last night at our Christmas Eve service. We've heard it quoted. It comes out during Christmas time, but let me just broaden the scene a little bit for this text just to set it in its appropriate context. Luke, the writer, is a physician, as many of you know. He also wrote the book of Acts, and he wrote Luke and Acts with a very express purpose in mind, and that was to win his friend Theophilus to Christ. Luke, a 24-chapter gospel, is an evangelistic Letter. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. Let me just show you this, verses 1 through 4. This is the context, this is the thrust for why Luke wrote about the birth of Jesus. Listen, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's talking about being a disciple around Jesus. And he's talking about how these things have been recorded. Verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have, here it is, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What Lucas just said in this text is that other People who have witnessed Jesus, who had walked with Jesus, who had seen the miracles, who had seen all of history coming clear in one person, that's Jesus Christ. Other people have written Gospels. And this is Luke's Gospel evangelistic tract to give to his friend Theophilus because he wanted him to come to Christ. Now, this is a very meticulous writer, a very detailed writer. He's a physician. He's an educated man. He's, he's writing something in a very thorough fashion to make a point. And the point is that all of universal history centers on Jesus Christ. And he wants, verse 4, he wants Theophilus to come clear with that fact and to have certainty that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And my question to you this morning is, are you certain Do you have clarity or do you have certainty that Jesus is your Lord? Are you certain in your heart that 
in that little town called Bethlehem, 300 people. Are you certain that the coming of Jesus Christ there as the God-man, that that's the most meaningful event in history to you? At least in the context of gospel events, if you put it all as one event, that that event, the incarnation of Christ, is that meaningful to you? Is that life and death for you? Because that was Luke's thrust here. This is evangelism. And I'll say it in this way, turning back to Luke 2. You've got a world stage that Luke opens up here. He's talking about Caesar Augustus and Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world at that time, calling for a decree and a census speaking words and moving the nations around with his words. Okay, you see how universal stage this is? You have that leader, that sovereign, and it's all under a greater sovereign leader who's a greater ruler. And the key to understanding this text is to understand that all of the world, as it's being moved around, is really being moved around and unfolding before our eyes under one sovereign Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. Are you certain that Jesus is Lord of all? And are you certain that he's the Lord of your life? Because that's the most important question that you have to answer this side of heaven and this side of eternity. Being certain, certainty. For instance, the dictator from northern Korea, Kim Jong-il, dies under the lordship of Christ, right? I mean, do you you know that? You have presidents that come into office, presidents that come out of office. You have world events. You have hurricanes. You have earthquakes like in Haiti. Remember, these things happen, and the world shakes and quakes. But guess what? It's all under Jesus, the Lord, and Christians are certain of that. We get angry about a lot of things, don't we? We get frustrated about a lot of macro details and, guess what, micro details, things in your life. You know, jobs won and jobs lost, promotions given, promotions not given, right? You you have families, members, things break apart, But are you certain that Jesus is Lord over all of that in your life as well? Both macro and micro. Both big picture and both in your heart. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Do you believe he is the Lord over all things? That's what Luke is trying to drive home. Look at verse 1. In those days, a decree, a census... A decree census went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Notice that phrase, all the world. This is what the New American Standard says, all the inhabited earth. All the inhabited earth was affected under this man. And Luke is comparing a secular king to the sacred king. And we're looking at the secular world leader of this time. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. This was Caesar Augustus. He was the first Caesar to be called Augustus. Augustus means holy or revered. This was the most revered man in the world. 
whether you were part of the Roman Empire, whether you were in Syria, north of Israel, or whether you were in Judah, you did not speak negatively about this man lest you die. This is a world-dominating leader who speaks words and the world moves and says, oh, I've got to go back to my ancestral home to to make sure I've got my, my P's and Q's set up straight so that I can make sure all my taxes go well to this man, to this emperor. This is a man who was the secular king of the world and he was politically dominant. He clawed his way past Mark Antony and Cleopatra and created what was called the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. And that Pax Romana, just don't look at it like, wow, this is a a safe, calm, easygoing, peaceful world. No, this was a Hitler's peace. This was a fear-based peace that was over the world under this man. And And what Luke is doing is he's setting the stage for Theophilus to see that this was a a universal moment. This was a world moment for this dominant leader to be ruling. And guess what that sets the stage for? For a greater sovereign to enter in in a humble way. I know that's the punchline, but I'm just sort of building it. So he's politically dominant. He's also religiously blasphemous, okay? I know I'm using adverbs in a strained way, but just bear with me. He's religiously blasphemous. This was a blasphemous guy. Why? Because he wore his leadership as if he was a demigod. Caesar Augustus, he wanted to be called holy. There was an inscription um, put outside of in Rome that said, Divine Augustus Caesar, Imperator of land and sea, benefactor and savior of the whole world. This is Caesar Augustus. He would have been sort of on along the pantheon of gods to be worshipped. And everybody was obligated to reverence him. Well, not only was he politically dominant, was he, he was also religiously blasphemous. He was thirdly, strategically greedy. This was a guy who was filled with greed. This census was for him to gain money to Rome. He wanted to oppress the world to remain dominant. How do you keep your oppressive hand on countries and regions that are far away from you in that time? I mean, it kind of reminded me of our country when King George taxed us, right? You can't, just, you can't just fly your F-15s over if people are getting upset at you and you want to sort of, you know, put some pressure on them to yield. You don't just fly planes over or say, look, I'm aiming my missiles your way. You better submit. That's not what you could do back then. What you did is you sent your army with people to tax and put taxation pressure on people to wield your political dominance. In other words, you drained people of their money, of their ability to build resources and military for themselves. You kept them oppressed from far distances so that you could be the ruler of the world. And that's what, that's what this religious leader was doing. This blasphemous leader from Rome was doing. He was oppressing the Israelites. The Israelites were not part of the army of Rome. They, they actually couldn't be by law. They were too poor. And so... All you did was just keep them poor as that leader. The world needed 
to be registered. And it also says, look at verse 2. Here's another leader that enters in. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, was in power. Now, Syria, just north of Israel on a, on a, on a map there. Quirinius is mentioned here because the stage is narrowing from a, a world stage to the stage right around Israel, Jerusalem, and Judea. And the neighboring dictator was Quirinius, right on top of God's land. Do you see that? If you were to look at a map, Syria is right north of Israel. And Quirinius is that power leader right there who's also in charge. And it's showing that all the power is stripped from Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdom. They're stripped of power and authority at this point, And they are under dictatorship. Why does Luke point this out? He points this out because this is a very dark day for Israel. It's a dark day for God's people where they needed their king to come. And the true sovereign to show up. What's amazing is how the true sovereign is going to come on the stage. Because it's very different. It's very different than you might expect. They expected a leader to come and overthrow people like Caesar Augustus, like Quirinius of Syria. They expected their leader to come in sword-wielding, nation-slaying fashion to right all the wrongs of oppression. But this king came in humble fashion. You have a secular king. You have Caesar's plan in verses 1 and 2. And then you have God's plan that's unfolding in verses 3 through 5. Look at this. The focus is narrowing even more from a world stage to Syria to now, verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Do you see the narrowing focus here? How we're moving from, from Syria down to Galilee, Where Joseph, who's been told to do this, he's been told that, listen, a prophecy is being fulfilled, that your wife, whom you're betrothed to, is going to give birth to the Savior. He circumstantially is moved 80 miles south to go to his little town, his little hometown called Bethlehem. I don't even know if Joseph was really raised there. That's just where his ancestral heritage is from. And so he's got to take his wife, who's with child, obviously in her third trimester, 13 or 14 years old, with a wobbly gait, 80 miles in the wintertime south, up and down this sort of mountainous terrain to his little town. And he is being submissive to this Roman dictator, to this Syrian dictator, right? And he's being submissive and humble to do that. And just when he would have thought, man, why in the world am I doing this? Perhaps he would recognize the prophecy in his heart and say, listen, there's a greater sovereign that's leading me to Bethlehem to fulfill Micah 5.2 so that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. I don't know if he had that in his mind or not, I think he was just being submissive to a leader. But God's plan was bigger than Caesar's plan. Amen? Even if it's done in a weird, 
wild way, even if a prophecy from Micah 5.2 that was 700 years earlier had to be fulfilled in this way, it's, it's God's program, not our own. God's program is bigger than what we can figure out. It's bigger than what we can see. And Joseph and Mary are these two teenage kids carrying the Christ child, the incarnate Son of God in the womb, 80 miles up and down. What is going on? You ever think, why am I here? What am I doing? What have you called me to, God? What is my life meaning? How, how does it fit in your greater program? We're not always going to see that. We're not always, always going to connect the dots. But we're just follow, we're following into God's program. Rulers are raised up, are put down, both in our lives specifically and in the macro. And God is in control, right? That's what Christians believe. That's what Luke wanted Theophilus to have the lights turn on about. Jesus is Lord. And this all comes together from a world stage to Syria to, to going down from Nazareth and Galilee down to Judah, that southern kingdom area, and down to Judea and into Bethlehem, this little tiny town of 300 people. This is God overriding Augustus rule. And he's in complete submission here. Listen to what one pastor said of this. This is one of my favorite pastors, Kent Hughes. He says, they appeared to be helpless pawns caught in the movements of secular history, but every move was under the hand of Almighty God. The Messiah would indeed be born in tiny and significant Bethlehem. Now listen to this. As the virgin traveled, her steady beating heart, hidden from the world, kept time with the busily thumping heart of God. Is that how you see your own faith? Is that how you understand your life? That's the way that Christians should. That is our confidence that as our heart beats, as our day-to-day opens up in front of us, we are directed under the sovereign hand of God. God was fulfilling prophecy. He was fulfilling Micah 5.2 as I have Mentioned, he's also fulfilling the fact that kings are born in Bethlehem. Remember, David was born in Bethlehem when Samuel the prophet anointed King David. It says in 1 Samuel 16 that the house of Jesse was found in Bethlehem because Jesse was a Bethlehemite. That's where King David came from, and that's a clear connection where King Jesus was to come from. It's where kings are made in the tiny little town of Bethlehem. It's all part of God's perfection. Well, we've seen the sort of dramatic contrast between Caesar Augustus, that sovereign, And then our humble sovereign, King Jesus, who's greater than King Augustus. But let's look more closely at him. The sacred king. We've seen the secular king. Let's look at the sacred king and his birth. This is verses 6 and 7, but again, verse 5. Let me look at this. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Can I just mention to you that when, when Jesus... This baby was to be born in Bethlehem. It was all part of God's design. And Joseph is this concerned husband for his wife. And I just want to bring out the fact that Joseph had a a massive mindset shift about being the husband of Mary when Gabriel spoke to him. 
I just got to mention that. Joseph was embarrassed. He was going to put Mary away from himself because his own reputation was on the line. She's pregnant and he knows he hasn't consummated the marriage. He's just betrothed. He's just engaged and she's pregnant. What's going on? And so his mindset completely shifted and he's cohabitating with Mary in purity and in holiness and it's all being prepared so the sacred king could come right on time. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, look at this time-sensitive language, the time came for her to give birth. While they were there. You know, a lot of times I think when we see the you know, the plays or the dramatic presentations of Joseph and Mary going into Bethlehem. You see the movies and things. You have Mary who's in labor as they're going into Bethlehem and they're, he's, you know, Joseph's banging on the door and then the, you know, the grumpy, you know, the, the extra in, in the actor's guild, right, comes out the grumpy, you know, innkeeper, right? What, you know, he couldn't get any other roles, so he got the innkeeper role and he's saying, oh, there's no room here. You know, I, I'm hard-hearted. You're you know, in labor right now, you're having contractions, but you can't come in here in this beautiful inn, right, that's plush and, and all of this and warm. And No, that's really not the scene. There's no innkeeper in the Bible, okay, grumpy or nice. There really isn't. Um, this is a little town of 300 people, so it could have been just even the inn is a, a sort of a caravan set up where you have sort of... Um, you know, wandering nomad type people with their tents all kind of put together, either in a circle or otherwise. It could have been a scene like that. In is also a word that's used of Jesus later on in Luke where he's saying, can you find me an inn or an upper room so that we can observe Passover there? We're really looking at just kind of a, a series of rooms that are like cells. That's, that's the inn, you know, setting. And what you would have is you would have the, the animals tied up or tethered down below, and perhaps Joseph and Mary were just sort of relegated out to the cave downstairs, outside. But even, there's no real mention of animals in this scene. There's just a manger or a feeding trough. But everybody at some level was camping, just some people were better off than others. But Joseph and Mary, they found accommodations there, and they were there for a while. Look at the text, verse 6. And while they were there, so they were there for a while, and she was finishing out her third trimester, and the time came for her to give birth. That word time is very significant in this sense. Both her gestation period had come, and it was time for her to give birth, and also this was fulfilling God's prophecy perfectly. Do you believe that God is always on time? He's perfect. He's perfect. Caesar Augustus, we can, we can sort of prop up a man, Caesar Augustus, who still got sick at times. He still had back pain, right? He still had knee injuries. He still, you know, had to put one leg, you know, in. I guess he didn't wear pants back then. He had to get into his toga, right? You know, the same way as everybody else. Whatever. He had to fasten his Lord. He was just a guy, right? He's not a God. He's just a man who in circumstances had that kind of power to be oppressive. Comparing him to Jesus is just ridiculous. Jesus Christ is the perfect son of God. Never created. He created Caesar Augustus. He created everybody and everything that was going on. In the power and mystery of God, 
Jesus is the one that sustained Caesar Augustus' life, right? As he ruled and was, was doing this. And in the mystery of God, Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, is being born in the midst of creation. It's amazing to just think about. All in God's perfect timing, in a perfect, the perfect way, in Bethlehem. And was Jesus on time for you and your salvation? He was for me. I, many times I feel like Jesus came just in the nick of time for me. I think what it would have been like had I not become a Christian at 17. And I know that you know, some of you became Christians later in your life. And you can say, man, or earlier in your life. Praise the Lord for that. And heartache is spared once you become a believer. And he's on time in God's plan. He was God's son. Look at this in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Can I just emphasize to you and to us as a congregation, can I just put this bedrock principle down that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? That's so important for our church. It's so important for the church in general. There are so many people that just sort of sidestep that fact and that principle. Jesus Christ being born of a virgin as the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary so that he could be conceived and then born of a virgin is the bedrock principle that Jesus Christ is the sinless Lamb of God. He was never touched by the fall of man in this world. Perfect. I believe Jesus could not have sinned. He did not have a heart of sin. Any temptation that came to Christ from Satan's temptations were all external, never born from the inside. And that's what makes Jesus God. And that's what makes Jesus the perfect sacrifice, the only one who could take on sins externally on the cross and be the savior for you and for me. He didn't just live a perfect life. He was perfect from the beginning. And when people sort of dismiss the virgin birth of Christ and say, well, that doesn't really matter. I don't really hold to that. They're undoing the gospel. They're pulling the string and unraveling something that is bedrock to our faith. So while they were there, she gave birth to her firstborn. That word firstborn is another very significant word, very profound word. It's prototokos. It's the same word that's used in Colossians 1.15 that says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, a Jehovah's Witness or other sort of cult religions will say, well, firstborn, that means that Jesus is a created being. He was created. He's not infinite. He was the created son of God. He's second under God. Well, that's undoing the deity of Christ. The word firstborn doesn't point to Jesus being a created being. The word firstborn means that Jesus rules and reigns and has rightful inheritance of all things. As creator of the universe. That's what firstborn means. When you had a firstborn son in the Old Testament economy, uh, Exodus chapter 13 talks of this. Numbers chapter 3 verse 12 talks of this. These are people who were the first to be born and then they inherited 
all of the family's wealth. They had primary inheritance. And the picture here of Jesus being the firstborn is that he is the inheritor of all creation because he is the creator of it. That's the point of Colossians 1. He created all things. So he's the firstborn. It also means that he is, he is unique in the family of Joseph and Mary. Remember, he was born of a virgin, but Joseph and Mary would have other children. John 7 talks about Jesus having half brothers, half brothers. There are brothers and sisters that are mentioned with Jesus in Mark 6, verse 3. Jesus had siblings, right? How fun would it have been to be raised with Jesus Christ? You know, you can never blame him really and get away with it. You know, it was Jesus who did this. He made me do it. Mary's going, nah, I'm just not buying it this time, you know. I don't see that. That'd be hard to live up to Jesus as your brother. But he was significant. He owns all things in the uniqueness of who he is. He was God's son and is God's son. He's also humble. He came in humble circumstances. So look at this again. He was the firstborn and he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. He was mummified. That's what Mary did. He, he, he was basically immobilized in swaddling cloths. That's what you would do back then. That's kind of what we've done with our babies as they've been born, as we've mummified them. We would wrap them up in blankets to keep them from scratching themselves or harming themselves. We used to call our children, you know, when they would be born, we'd wrap them up. We'd call them the baby burrito, Okay. And that's all that Mary was doing. But it just shows the humble circumstances for which the Son of God was born to our world. Very humble. But let me just point something out. Jesus was born in this sort of impoverished impoverished setting for a couple reasons. Number one, so that only through the eyes of faith do you see that that's God, right? Only eyes that have been awakened see that. And secondly, let me just say it this way. Jesus, I believe, was born in that setting, in that humble setting, so that it would be incredibly public, incredibly public, and sort of so unusual that you couldn't dismiss it. Now, what do I mean by that? Had, had Jesus been born, for instance, had he been born in a setting up in Jerusalem where Mary and Joseph were from, you know, up in Nazareth, with, with mom there in a home, sort of in a private setting with a midwife. You know, nobody really would have known about that scenario. This was a scenario that had to have been increasingly public. Even though it was down in small Bethlehem, you have this pregnant woman who is needing to be put out in the stable setting, and then they're, they're setting up a home there and camp there, and people had to have been talking about this setting, and then suddenly you have... Mary, who's going into labor and screaming, and helpless Joseph, he didn't know what to do. He's never been in that situation before, right? And then you have a baby that's screaming louder than Mary, perhaps. Had all of this happened in private up in Nazareth, it perhaps would have been forgotten in 20 years. It's very public. Listen to, again, what Kent Hughes said of this. I love this quote. If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country fair stable, we miss the whole point. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up 
to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he grasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. A little different than away in the manger, right? This is a graphic scene. When babies are born, it's very graphic. It's very wonderfully desperate and wonderfully pain-filled and beautiful. And it was public. It was earth-shattering. Jesus' humble birth, you know what it did? It it sort of set the stage for Jesus' humble ministry. When Jesus would come to town as a 30-year-old man, to perform miracles. He was coming sort of as a traveling nomad, a place where he, I mean, a person who really didn't have a place to lay his head. He was the miracle worker. He spoke powerful words. He was known as the carpenter's son, who just struck people with awe, both externally. And then when people would believe and their eyes would be open, they'd say, wow, okay, carpenter's son grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee, Whoa, he's God. That's what happens when you believe. And that's the message of Luke. When you read Luke, read it through the lens that these 24 chapters were written to a Gentile named Theophilus. And and Luke is trying to, in a very detailed fashion, open up a friend's mind and thinking to Jesus and his dominance. His dominance over the world over Caesar Augustus, over the elements, over creation, over the demons, over the devils, over everything. He's dominant over heaven, over earth, over the underworld. He's Lord, he's Lord, he's Lord, he's Lord. He's the Alpha and the Omega, right? Amen? He's God. That's what Luke is doing here. He's trying to stoke faith that happens supernaturally when the Spirit of God takes inspired word and opens up faith and belief. Well, do you believe that this humble sovereign overrides the Caesar Augustus, Augustuses of the world? Do you believe he's Lord over the universe, over the world events? Believers do. Do you believe he's Lord over the smallest, seemingly insignificant details in your life? Moving teenagers 80 miles down to Bethlehem type details, stable details. Do you believe he's Lord over details of your life? Believers do. If you don't, Believe in him in that way. Watch your heart open up and your life open up. Watch the ground that you walk on stabilize because you are believing that Jesus is Lord of your life. I said it last night. I'll say it again. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is, let's say it together, Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. 
And when you see him as beautiful and sort of splashed across the screen of your heart in that way, your life changes. Well, let's look at how the angels and the shepherds responded when light dawned in their hearts. Look at verse 8 of Luke 2. I'm not going to open this up. I'm just going to read it. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now look at this. Look at the explosion of heaven that happens over this event. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude, perhaps uncountable amounts, of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Has that kind of glory shown in your hearts yet? Because that is saving faith glory. Here's a few points just to apply this personally. Having Jesus as king is the only way to have real peace. Are you looking for peace? Don't go to the newspaper or the internet. Don't go to relationships here on earth to find the peace that you ultimately need. I'm not saying it's wrong to know about world events or to try to reconcile things or to vote well and to be involved. I think that's all important. But there's a greater sovereign that's Lord over the stuff that we can't totally put together, and that's Jesus. And knowing that king and yielding to that king is the only way to get heart peace. You can get secular peace, kind of, that will be fragmented and sort of you're trying to control it and put it together. But Compared to the sacred peace that comes from the sacred king, secular peace is just here and gone. Life is a vapor, appears for a little while and vanishes away. We need sacred king peace. It comes through the cross of Jesus Christ and being reconciled to him. Number two, this is our last point. Having Jesus as king requires poverty and humility. What I mean by that is that... Jesus came to us in poverty, and he came to us in humility. And whether you are wealthy or poor isn't the matter. It's being poor in spirit. When you run to Jesus and you're coming to him, there's only one real posture to come to him with. Saving faith is like this, where you come to Jesus like this. You're running to him. You're bowing before him. There's nothing in your hands. There's nothing in your safety deposit box of spirituality. There's no goodness that you're bringing to him. There's nothing you're bringing Jesus and saying, look, I've done this. I've worked this up in my life. You, you deserve me. We deserve each other. I'm a good person. I, I need this for my kids. I need you in my life for, for my happiness. No, you're coming to Jesus going, look, I don't have anything to bring to you. I need you Because I am a sinner and I've got nothing to prop myself up with. I've got no props. I've got no help. I need Jesus Christ and you come to him like this. That's how you can know sacred peace. 
It's a poor in spirit attitude. It's entering into Jesus' helplessness. Christianity is always born on the stage of helplessness. Helplessness brings hopefulness. Do you see it? Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we might become rich in faith. That's what 2 Corinthians says. Helplessness. The most entitled king of the universe chose poverty. The most powerful king ruled by humility. May we all be humbled by this text because this text opens up the sovereign Lord of the universe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your text. I thank you for the work that your saint Luke put together by writing these 24 chapters That's an evangelism track. I pray, God, that Christmas would be so meaningful to us because it's a time to commemorate the sacred gift that you've given to us because we know the sacred King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray that if there are people who don't yet know you, I pray they wouldn't be ashamed of that. I pray that people would not be telling themselves things that are lies or talking themselves out of being humble. Lord, I pray that you would stop those conversations Stop pride-filled conversations where people harden up and say, I'm okay, I'm okay, I did this, I prayed this prayer, I, I, I know I'm a Christian. I pray that you would just intervene in those arguments, Lord. If Satan is whispering in people's ears, telling people not to do business with God, if, if pride is filling people's hearts right now, swelling and hardening their hearts, I pray that you would stop that process and, Lord, you would reach into people's lives and tame their hearts, soften their hearts, humble their hearts, give them poverty of spirit so that they in helplessness can turn to you. I pray that people would not say, well, it's Christmas, I don't want to be embarrassed. I pray that that would all fall away and that people would truly kneel before you and say, you are king, you are Lord, you are the gift of grace. And I pray that you would set people in a new direction now so that they would know you, Lord, and be on mission to make you known. We thank you for this morning, God, of Christmas, where we can worship you, because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.